You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the co-host of the show, and also uh, an MSNBC legal analyst and the author of The Watergate Girl. Today, we have a terrific guest, someone who was one of the impeachment managers during the second impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump. She is Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett. She became a star for her clear, concise, and compelling presentations She represents the United States Virgin Islands in the House, where she has served for four terms. Currently, she sits on the influential House Ways and Means Committee, as well as the House Committee on the Budget. She previously served on the House Oversight and Reform Committee. And before coming to Congress, she was an assistant district attorney in the Bronx, giving her fantastic trial skills that were on full display in the trial. Uh, She also served in the Department of Justice as senior counsel under Deputy Attorney General Larry Thompson and later under Deputy Attorney General James Comey uh, before he became director of the FBI. Congresswoman Plaskett earned an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University and was one of Congressman Raskin's students while at AU Law School. Thank you so much for being with us today, Congresswoman Plaskett. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, before I begin, I just want to let Jill have a moment to explain her uh, pin, um, and then we'll get into the conversation after that. Well, this is, of course, in honor of Congresswoman Plaskett, and it is a phone booth that, when you open the door, reveals that the woman wearing a trench coat when it's closed is actually Superwoman. And I felt it was a good pin to wear for for you today. So I hope you appreciate it. I'm also wearing a bracelet that is uh, composed of um, superwoman icons. So well, well, you are, you are my uh, group's superwoman. Uh, you are an iconic figure to so many Uh-oh. of us. So thank you so much for your incredible work. Um, long before uh, I stepped onto the floor of the Senate in January. Thank you. Thank yeah, well, you. If I open doors, I'm thrilled. Yes, for sure. Well, you know, Jill mentioned your standout performance during the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump and your background as a litigator. So I'd like to start off by asking you what the process was like to prepare for this particular trial, the second impeachment of Donald Trump, and kind of give us a sense of what it was like for you and the rest of the impeachment team to sort through the facts and the evidence from the January 6th insurrection. Well, of course, um, thank you so much for that. And I think that it's an opportunity for me to highlight uh, the people that you don't see, right? You see the nine impeachment managers, but there's an incredible team of staff that have dedicated their work and their professional life to working on Capitol Hill and to being members, uh, individuals who support those members of Congress. So we had staff from the Judiciary Committee as well as the Oversight Committee. Uh, And then Barry Burke, who was the lead counsel, outside counsel, and he brought some members of his team as well. And I mentioned them because they sifted through thousands of hours of videos. 
thousands of hours along with demonstrative evidence, what would be demonstrative evidence, um, social media, news clippings, posts from insurrectionists, posts of the president before his Twitter accounts and others were shut <laughs> off just uh, to demonstrate the case that we had. Uh, and all of that evidence was available to us, much more still being revealed, but we realized at the time we that we were named, we were preparing ourselves for a trial that could potentially happen before the president left office. It was our thought that this individual is an eminent threat and continues to be an eminent threat to our democracy, which is why you saw that article of impeach impeachment being prepared, um, brought before the Judiciary Committee, the Rules Committee, and then brought to the floor as quickly as it did. And uh, because we were in COVID, there was so much Zoom hours spent with one another where we would on a daily basis get together usually twice a day, um, several hours a day each time um, to go over initially our theory, things that we thought were important, not important, what we thought was the theory of the case, how it could be best demonstrated what evidence we would like to have if it were available. And then the staff would go and try and find that. Um, trying to figure out what in the universe of social media, um, available documents to us that were we were able to prove, what could we do without hostile witnesses um, in proving this case, uh, and act in many ways as you would an investigative group before you then move to the trial. We also, after we came up with what we believed was a storyline, then creating who was going to be the ones that would um, argue each component. And here I have to give credit to Speaker Pelosi, who was the individual who named the nine impeachment managers. And I think it's such an incredible credit to her to understand her caucus, to understand its members, their backgrounds, their pros and cons, their strengths and weaknesses, to come up with a group that ranged in age, in geography, even in ideology, who together really were a complete group to answer a lot of questions, you know, with Jamie Raskin being a constitutional lawyer, to an individual like Madeline Dean, who had been an elected official in a state mm -hmm. legislature in a state in which there was a dispute that the president had exerted pressure on. Uh, and so I think all of those were really important and how we attempted to feed off of one another. For all of our non-lawyer and lawyer listeners, you know, Speaker Pelosi did such a good job and you can really feel the cohesion within that group. And I would just also like to mention that Congressman Pla uh, Congressman uh, Raskin was your former professor as well when you were in law school, which also made it even more it's, stunning. It's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> always jokes because, and I try not to do it too often to remind him that I have more seniority than him in Congress. <laughs> um, but I will pull rank periodically. But you know, he was when he came to. Well, I was my first year of law school was his first year teaching, and he was actually oh, wow. younger than quite a number of people that were in law school, just an incredible wunderkind, right? Um, and he went about being the lead impeachment manager in the same way he did as a law professor. 
using Socratic method to question people, question people's theories and ideas, um, teasing thoughts out of individuals, walking you through them so to determine the logic of it, dismissing those, you know, collectively dismissing pieces that we didn't think were right, and really coming up with something that we felt um, not only 100 senators could agree to, but the American people would believe as well. Right. And you did such a good job with that. And, you know, you also, you know, you laid out for our audience so well about what the process was like uh, preparing for this impeachment trial. And I'd just like to ask two follow up questions, which is first, how did you narrow down the charges um, of, you know, the impeachment? And then second, how important was it to rely on videos um, to show the public instead of relying on other mediums of communication? Great questions. Uh, you know, there was great debate afterwards and while we were in the trial, if maybe we should have done more articles. Um, and, you know, hindsight, right, is is 2020. Um, but I think that what we were trying to do is what is the crux of what happened? And if Americans could not agree that this was grounds for impeachment, and removal of a president, what else could we have come up with uh, that would be such that a, a president should be removed? You know, there was some debate, and I don't know how you feel about this, um, the rest of you, but there was a thought of maybe we should have had a separate dereliction of duty um, mm -hmm. article. We felt that that encompassed in the first one, um, but there's good debate over that. The second one with regard to the evidence and videos was, uh, and I thought in some ways, I wasn't sure if we were always going to get away with it. Because mm -hmm. if you look at some of the videos that we utilized, it were, it was um, officers after the fact, stating on camera, what their experience was, and their thoughts and their feelings. And there was no cross examination. And so in some ways we were putting witnesses on the stand by those videos and giving that information to the senators without defense counsel having uh, had an opportunity to do a cross of them. And what a lot of people are unaware of is that in a Senate impeachment trial, there are not individuals called as witnesses in the traditional sense where someone comes in to the Senate chamber and they raise their hand and they are questioned right there. What would happen is we would probably fight for several months about what the witness, look, witness list looked like. And then they would be videotaped in a deposition. The defense counsel would have an opportunity to as well videotape them in response. And then that video would be shown to the Senate not an actual person. So we really felt that the videos were important, not only to show the incidents as they occurred at that time, but also trying to get in um, spontaneous utterances, uh, impressions, um, thoughts of the of people who were there at the time, which in many instances would probably be excluded as hearsay uh, in, in a court of law. One of the most powerful things that happened during the second impeachment was you're walking the public through footage um, that 
neither senators nor the public had ever seen yeah. before. Yeah. And that's despite the fact that we all saw, well, we saw it happening live. Um, before you presented, there was a lot of discussion that the evidence would be this never before seen footage. And of course that raises, uh, as a trial lawyer for me, it's like, are you over-promising if it's mm -hmm. never seen? Uh, expectations are high. Um, you did live up to expectations. It, it clearly was new and powerful. It exceeded expectations. Um, but can you just sort of talk to our audience about what your intention was with this new footage and keeping it secret until you played it during the trial? Well, if, if you recall, uh, there was very little to almost no leaks during the time period of us being named and the actual trial, which is, you know, on Capitol Hill in Washington, yeah. amazing in itself, right? Uh, and so as we were preparing, there were whole blocks that were removed, actually. And I can recall, um, and this will let you know, the, the secret competitive nature um, of all of us in the group, that as we were preparing, sometimes you'd read through and you'd do the prep, and then the question would come up, does that really fit there? Should that go somewhere else? And in my portions, quite a bit was taken out and put other places. Mm -hmm. And I can recall coming home one evening and telling my husband, I'm just gonna be a flop because all the really good juicy stuff they took out and they put in other places. And he's like, oh, you're, you're gonna do fine. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. I, I always have stomach aches, you know, before I always feel really ill. Um, but the notion of walking through the actual evidence was given to myself and um, Eric Swalwell because we were the two who had dealt the most with evidence as prosecutors. So there was a belief that we had the skill sets to be able to still talk to a jury and have used demonstrative evidence and be able to move back and forth between the two. Additionally, remember we created that model yes. with the dots that we're following and trying to orient people to who, which dots meant which, and where it was while the video was going on was also something that uh, we felt should go to people who were used to dealing with evidence also. You mentioned something interesting that um, reminds me in terms of best kept secrets, Alexander Butterfield, who is the witness who told about the existence of a taping system in the Nixon White House, uh -huh. testified before the House Impeachment Committee on a Friday. And it was kept secret until Monday when he testified publicly. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. I wow. Mean, from Friday to Monday. And that, of course, was like the most dramatic revelation. It changed how, the whole outcome. How many people were there when he and when he said that? Um, well, it was all the staff. Uh, who were asking questions. Some of the members themselves were there. I don't know exactly how many. Um, and it was a harmless question that led to that revelation. He was asked, um, 
gee, this, this piece of this document looks like it could be a transcript of something. And he said, no, it's not. He said, and so then the next question was, well, was there a taping system? And mm -hmm. it was, and it was spurred by a totally irrelevant document. And he said, yes, he had struggled himself with what will I do if I'm asked a specific question? Mm. He had decided he would not volunteer the information, but if he was right. asked the right question, he would not lie. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so anyway, that's, that's how it happened. But, um, anyway, um, Thanks for that tidbit. <laughs> Let's go back to your clips because they were uh, they were so well put together, and and as you noted, um, you and Congressman Swalwell both have the skill set that trial lawyers have, which is storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's 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 how you get a, a communication so that it will be understood and powerful. Mm -hmm. And both of you, of course, were able to do that. How did you choose the particular clips? Um, that you used uh, to tell the story in this particular case? Um, there were so much more. <laughs> and uh, originally, I would say that my first presentation was maybe twice the size. Oh, wow. And I think what we were really concerned with was overkill. And um, I particularly did not want to appear to be condescending or preaching to the senators. I felt that that was disrespectful. Uh, they were not only witnesses, but also victims. Uh, there was no doubt about what happened. Mm -hmm. And so I think we really tried to narrow it to the most impactful pieces. Uh, in the beginning, you know, the story was that this was a president who wanted to retain power. And when the judiciary branch pressure on elected officials in the states and other avenues were closed off to him, he was willing to resort to violence and to an actual coup attempt of our government. And so that was the story that we were trying to tell. Uh, and we were just trying to get sufficient evidence to support that, to show that and, and to make people believe, uh, even though the standard is not beyond a reasonable doubt, that there would be no doubt in people's mind as to what had transpired. To me, what was one of the most impactful pieces of information when we were working on this was when I found out that the president himself had been engaged in the planning of the rally and had moved the permit from being a rally that was supposed to stay at the ellipse to one that then allowed them to go to the Capitol, uh, which to me showed a clear intent to have this mob come to the Capitol itself. They were supposed to originally stay rally throughout the counting of the electoral college uh, at the ellipse and the permit precluded them from going to the Capitol originally. Uh, and so those were the kinds of things that we were trying to draw out. And the other one um, was even in our language and our tone, we had this clear intent of using Republican phrases. Like I had this constant um, redlining and discussion with Jamie Raskin about word usage. And I was like, you sound like, um, 
you sound like a super blue Democrat. You know, you need to learn how to speak. And since I was the only person who had been in a Republican administration, worked for Republican, they would always say, Stacey, you speak Republican. How does this sound? <laughs> uh, so using words like um, dereliction of duty, love of country, um, these were the kind of word usage that we felt would speak better to the that they could understand more and could trig be triggered more than some of the words that uh, are much more sim yeah. symbolic or symptomatic of the democratic group. So uh -oh. you've now mentioned dereliction of duty twice, mm -hmm. once in the context of you considered it as a, a charge and now mm -hmm. as a way to communicate in Republican mm -hmm. speak. Mm -hmm. um, and now that we have the latest from uh, Vice President Pence, who clearly, I think, makes a case that there was dereliction of duty. Um, going in hindsight, what do you think? Well, you know, we still don't have evidence that the dereliction of duty was by the president, which is what the Republicans will tell you. Mm -hmm. That, yes, the Defense mm -hmm. Department w refused to um, heed the request of Vice President Pence, but was that their own doing? Or was, did the president actually make the phone call and tell them not to do that? That's what a Republican will come back with you with regard to that amount. And to find that smoking gun where the president says, nobody make any phone calls and let the place burn down, I think will be one that will take many years for us to find if, it, if it's there. And, and you I don't think, think it's enough. Do, do you think it's enough that the president um, certainly knew what was going on and failed to act. In the same way, I would say that the three police officers who were not Derek Chauvin, but the three other officers mm -hmm. who were with him did nothing to stop uh, Officer Chauvin from doing what he was doing and actually assisted him. Um, sure, I think it's enough. <laughs> I think it's sufficient. Um, do, you know, so here's what I was going to say. I was initially going to say, would 17 Republicans think that? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I think really the hurdle was much more than 17 Republicans though. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree completely. And right. uh, it, it, while you were giving your presentation, were you looking at the Republicans? Did you see any? The entire time. Yeah. And yeah. what did you see? Were they paying attention? Were they? I saw that, but for maybe three or four, that they were intently listening. Hmm. Wow. And that in a number of instances, they were nodding in agreement. In some instances, they actually broke down crying. Really? Tearing up. Republicans, not Democrats. And in each one of those examples, these were not members who voted to impeach, um, to convict. Yeah. All right. Well, your, your presentation did another thing in Republican speak, so to say, which was you based some of your legal arguments on a constitutional interpretation that Republicans love, which is originalism. And mm -hmm. that means sticking to the words, the exact words of the Constitution and the intent as our founders meant it in an era when we didn't have all the things that we have today, video and everything else. Um, was that a deliberate effort to try to reach Republicans? 
Yes. Um, it's also a theory that I believe in <laughs> oh. as well. Really? Um, okay. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little more about that then. Uh, I just, you know, I fear the stretch of our constitution um, for good or for bad. I think it's been stretched in ways that it was not intended to um, for conservative purposes, as well as for liberal purposes uh, in, some, in some ways. And so that concerns me. Uh, and I think that in the instance of the impeachment trial, one need not have to stretch the meaning of the constitution to have found that this president was guilty. Interesting. And and how hopeful were you that you would get to 67? You mentioned yeah. the 17 magical number. Right. Very. And people think that we're, we're naive to think that way, but I don't think that you go into a battle or a trial thinking you're going to lose. Mm -hmm. right. I think that that will, you, you're definitely going to lose if you go into it that in that way. I think our thought was that potentially we would have one of those Watergate moments where uh, in the Judiciary Committee during the Watergate hearings, you see the Republicans shaking their head and in this conundrum where they know that they're going to have to go against their president and they love their country more than their party or their ideology. I mean, there was this prayer that that would happen. Um, it did not. It did not. I shared your, your Pollyanna view. Can that, I say one other thing though about that? Oh, please. Absolutely. Is that, uh, when I said it, we needed more than 17. And the reason I say that is that it's my theory. I mean, I, I don't have consensus among the group that this is in fact the case that, uh, Mitch McConnell was hedging his bets throughout the entirety of from the impeachment articles being drafted until the verdict came through. Mm -hmm. And remember that we did the impeachment articles in time to walk them over and begin the trial during the time period when which Mitch McConnell was in fact the majority leader. Mm -hmm. And that delay then allowed an out for the Republicans to say that the president was no longer in office and therefore you cannot impeach a former president, which was what a lot of them held as the reason that they could not convict him, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I believe that Mitch McConnell wanted to give himself that, but I do believe that he wanted to convict the president. Right. But I think that in whipping the votes, that is in layman's terms, determining where everyone's vote was, he needed a majority of his caucus to support conviction or else he could not remain the majority leader hmm. of the Republican caucus. He cannot have be someone convicting the president with 17 and the majority vote to not convict the president. He would have to have stepped down. He would be overthrown. Hmm. And it's my belief that his desire to remain majority leader was such that when he realized he would not get that overwhelming, um, get more than half, that the door was closed. And so the entire time that he was listening, 
I mean, the intensity which he was watching us and listening to the evidence was, it was kind of frightening how intense he was. Um, and I think that was because he knew what we were saying was damning, but there was not much he could do. I had conversations with other Republican senators, which is always kind of strange, um, right? That you are presenting to jurors and then during lunch hour and in the corridors, they're talking to you about the case. They're like, oh, I like that piece, but do you, I think you should go more into this. And I didn't like that. And I don't think you really necessarily made the case there. And I'm like, are you, are you supposed to be talking to me? Um, but it's a very different, you know, the rules are very different. And I had, um, I recall a conversation where someone was like, you know, I believe, Stacey, that you've proven the case, but I'm not going to vote with you. And I was like, oh, come on. Why don't you? I said, well, how about splitting the baby? How about you, you vote to convict, but we only need a majority to disqualify. So then don't vote to disqualify. And he's like, yeah, that would be great, but you're not gonna get 17, I've whipped votes. So I would never be able to get to the disqualification portion. And I'd just be left to hang out to dry as one of maybe 10, 12, 13, who voted to convict the president. Obviously the end result wasn't what you desired, but it appears that your effort shifted public opinion because there was an uptick in support for finding former President Trump guilty and barring him from holding public office in the future. Do you think it was your presentation that shifted the public narrative? What do you think changed that shift and that uptick in support for that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think it was the totality of people seeing finally um, and putting evidence together that this was a pattern and practice that this president uh, cultivated these groups, uh, knew what they were capable of. Uh, understood what their intent was in coming to Washington, what happened with Vice President Pence on the day of the event, um, you know, seeing how close they were to assassinating the Vice President, the Speaker of the House, the Majority Leader, and the President then tweeting during that time that he knows his Vice President is in danger uh, to call attention to him and, and the fact that he was obstructing Trump from getting his way. I think all of those in its totality probably is, is what did that. And I can just say, speaking on behalf of some of my peers, my friends, we were so, your presentation was so gripping and so compelling that I had so many people message me saying that we are so frightened just by watching that, especially that um, that layout of the Capitol with the red dot kind of following along. It was, That was so effective. And so many young people were like, this is this is frightening. And, and they really kind of found this interest in law when they otherwise wouldn't have. So um, definitely a, a great presentation. You definitely resonated with my generation, I believe. Um, Law schools will owe me for all the uptick in applications. Yes, for sure. Um, but what concerns me and Jill perhaps the most right now is that we're still seeing people who believe that the election is rigged and, you know, was stolen from Trump by massive fraud and that Biden isn't president. And this goes back to something that Jill and I have talked so much on this podcast about, which is the complete denial of fact and reality from Republicans and uh, their constituents. 
I want to ask you, you know, if people having heard and watched your impeachment trial and presentation continue believing that, how do you think we can ever reach Trump supporters if that's even possible? Right. I'm concerned. I'm very concerned. I had a conversation with someone today um, about a, a scientist, an individual who's a scientist in Washington who believes that uh, that President Biden and Vice President Harris really are not in Washington, <laughs> that there's no one in the White House, uh, and that this oh is all, you know, the, the government is being operated somewhere else. It was frightening. I was like, I was talking to her last week. <laughs> you know? She was talking about moving in to uh, oh to the vice president's residence, it's really very frightening. Um, oh. And so that information and misinformation and what is happening on social media is frightening to me. But what's also frightening is something that I talked about before the trial uh, that I'm seeing playing out is, you know, how often people were saying, we should just let it go, it's over, it happened, he's not president anymore let's just move on. And I'm like, no, we have to hold people accountable. We have to have truth sayers. There needs to be, um, you know, truth and reconciliation. You can't have reconciliation without the truth, without there being some justice involved here. And I think that the Senate letting him off the hook has allowed for this resurgence and this the strength of the Jim Crow laws that we're seeing um, where people are saying, oh no, there was election fraud and people stole the election and that justifies us creating laws that are basically racist, uh, that are keeping not just, it's not just against African-Americans and people of color, but poor people, right? People who don't have access to polling places is making it more difficult. So it's class as well that are going to be cut off in our next election cycle. And so I've always thought, and I heard the phrase used like two weeks ago, that we are in a cold civil war, as opposed to an active battle with guns civil war, Mm -hmm. that in the same way we had a cold war with Russia, America is now in a cold war with itself, a civil war, which is a war of ideology and a war of, of the direction of this country, um, the browning and the globalization and continuing to opening up this country and others who want it to remain a certain way. And we're seeing that in some of these laws that are coming forward. And I think because the president was not convicted, that that has given them strength. You deal with so many people, you know, from your constituents, just, um, you know, your fans. And how do you talk with someone who disagrees with you, you know, just for our audience who, you know, may they, they may encounter a Trump supporter or someone who doubts the election. How do you even talk with them? And when when you talk to Trump supporter, how do you get across to them? And, you know, how do you, you know, you know, what happens when they have no factual predicate in their opinion? Yeah, it's difficult, right? Because uh, because you're trying to present them with facts, and they're presenting you with TikTok and um, YouTube videos by individuals who like, you know, just think about COVID, Um, just thinking about vaccinations. Uh, I had a conversation with someone and and I know this may be a little mean on my part, who was like, 
you know they're going to take your DNA. If, if I take you from the vaccine shop, they're going to take my DNA. And I was like, sweetheart, nobody wants your DNA. <laughs> Nobody's interested in that. <laughs> but those are the kinds of things that you're fighting on a regular basis right. with people. And so I try and gauge, is this person really trying to learn? Are they really open to ideas? Or is this someone who just wants to scream and preach at me? Uh, and make that because my time is valuable. And there are so many people who don't have information who want to know that I could be spending my time with, mm -hmm. as opposed to arguing uh, with complete utter ignorance that is unwilling to recognize that they're being ignorant. Yeah. That's one of the best answers I've heard for how to deal with this unbelievable situation. Um, I, I want to go back to what we were talking about with Senator McConnell, mm -hmm. who voted to acquit and minutes later issued a statement that was disturbing and simultaneously possibly hopeful. And I want to read a, a, a portion of it because to me it's so dramatic and captures the, the issue at hand. Mm -hmm. He said, and I'm quoting him, there's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. The leader of the free world cannot spend weeks thundering that shadowy forces are stealing our country and then feign surprise when people believe him and do reckless things. But then McConnell, of course, went on to say the Senate has no jurisdiction to impeach because he's no longer in office. And he, of course, was no longer in office because, as you noted, McConnell didn't let it go to trial while he was still in office. Um, but he then concluded with the, the best lines of all, he said, but he is still liable to be tried and punished in the ordinary tribunals of justice and continued by saying, put another way in the language of today, President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen, unless the statute of limitations has run. He is still liable for everything he did while in office. He didn't get away with anything yet, yet he repeated, we have a criminal justice system in this country, we have civil litigation, and former presidents are not immune from being held accountable by either one. So what I want to ask based on that is, as we're watching, um, at least 29 civil suits have been filed. There are multiple investigations going in Georgia, in New York State, in Manhattan, in D.C., um, uh, I mean, we could start with either what you think of his procedural argument. Was that just total hokey nonsense? Um, was there any ground for it? Um, and what do you think about holding uh, the former president accountable in criminal and civil litigation? Well, I'm hopeful about some of these cases. Um, you know, Fulton County, as you talked about in Georgia yeah. and Willis. Um, New York, of course, with, you know, the indomitable uh, Tisha James going after just about anybody and everybody uh, from the NRA to Trump to whomever. Um, it's just fantastic. Uh, but, you know, I think that some of those have real legs to them. Um, District of Columbia going after him in civil, even civil court for inciting the riot and the damage and the destruction done. 
uh, I think those are real cases. And I'm hopeful that and grateful for our constitution that has given us uh, three branches of government uh, that has now allowed the judiciary to potentially um, go through its process of finding him liable for the things that uh, they may have jurisdiction to call into question about. You know, they shut him down. Think about it, 66 cases brought before January 6th, lost all of them. Yeah. Some of them opinions written by the judges that he put on the bench. It's it's true. And there are so many. I mean, there's two different uh, suits that were brought by members of Congress um, under the mm -hmm. Ku Klux Klan Act. Right. The Capitol Benny Police, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, the NAACP and Benny Thompson and then mm -hmm. 10 others. And then Eric Swallow followed, uh, filed his own. Mm -hmm. Capitol Police mm -hmm. have sued two of them. Uh, for the injuries that that happened. Um, so there's a ton of civil ones the IRS has a huge case against him. But is there anything Congress can still do? Is there any way that he can be held accountable? Maybe the 14th Amendment barring him from future office? Yeah, you know, I believe that we have done our duty through the impeachment. And I believe that um, we've done our task. I think what will be very telling will be the 2022 election cycle and see what our constituents, whether they be in the Senate or even in the House, um, whether they would agree with us or not on that. Um, you know, I think that we have a tremendous agenda as members of Congress that we have to work on now. Uh, and I think our job now is to continue to try and heal our country and move us forward. So um, again, we're running out of time. And so we have to have you back as an, a guest again, because yes. I, I want to ask where, you- Where about, are you located, Jill? I'm, I'm in Evanston and Victor is just a few miles, uh, maybe 15 miles yeah. west of, of Evanston. Uh, he's actually a student at UCLA Yes, um, but because there's no classes, <laughs> Come, doing it from his doing bed. it from home. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. hopefully next year he'll be at school, but we'll be continuing to do this. Um, but but maybe Victor likes his his, his usual last question <laughs> for um, just to make it completely intergenerational. Um, you know, you have had such a phenomenal career spanning from the DOJ now as Congresswoman and. So many people and young people are inspired by people like you who dedicate their lives to public service and public leadership. What advice do you have for those who may be thinking of that line of work? Mm. Uh, you know, I do definitely believe it's a calling. Uh, you know, when I talked about all those staffers that worked on this case as well, these are tremendous individuals who could be anywhere, right? Who could be making real money in other places uh, rather than, you know, having dedicated themselves to what they're doing. Uh, and so I think one has to have a calling for this or one really should just take some time to experience it, even if it's not something that you end up uh, doing for the rest of your life while you can, while you can take risks when you're young. I think that it would behoove all of us to serve your country 
by being involved in public service for a number of years before you move on to something else. I think it gives you an appreciation for our government, uh, for how it moves, how people are passionate about it. Um, the advice that I would give people is, I'm, I'm not one to tell people that they should go to law school. I, I'm not one of those individuals. I think that as well is not something that you should do just when you don't know what you wanna do with yourself, but it's something that you should do if you feel called to the law. Um, I, as you know, just so your viewers know, went to undergrad, uh, I was at Georgetown's Foreign Service School and my undergraduate degree is in history and diplomacy. And it was the closest I could get to being an anthropologist. I wanted to be a cultural anthropologist. And my dad told me that that's for people with trust funds, not for working class children like ourselves. Um, and so I thought, well, oh, diplomatic corps, you know, you're studying people, you're uh, reviewing um, cultures, I'll do that. Um, and I still am very passionate about history, but I know that when I went to law school, um, although it's one of the most difficult things that I did, I knew that I was where I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. I loved law school. I loved the law. Um, and I love my country. People talk about when you get the call from Nancy Pelosi, what did you think? First of all, I was floored, but I also felt like I was doing my duty to my country. Mm -hmm. And Jamie Raskin, even before that, sometimes I'd see him on the floor and he'd be like, we're saving the Republic. You know, and people think that that's a trite, funny thing to say, but he really believes that. That is our job to fight for this republic, this country that we have. Uh, and I, you know, just look at look at the three of us, right? This is multi generations. We look different from each other. Our experiences are really different. But that's America, and that's what makes America continually great. Um, over the summer during Black Lives Matter, I am I never want to apologize to our country, to Europe because I believe they have issues that we'll never have. Uh, you cannot be a Frenchman, even if you're three generations in France and you're brown or you look like you, Victor, you're not a Frenchman, uh, but you come to America and you're an American. Uh, once, once you raise your hand and you pledge allegiance to this country. And I think that's what allows us to be innovators in ways that other countries cannot. That's what allows us to get as many gold medals as we do in our Olympics and um, be the great country that we are. And I think it's important for young people to experience that, um, that greatness by service. That's what makes America dynamic is our willingness to serve and to support our country in any way you are passionate. Well, look no further than Congresswoman Plaskett for that. Um, we want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And, you know, this was such a delight. And we definitely need to have you back in the future because this was wonderful. Thank you. And Victor, when you're in D.C., you got to come by our office and spend some time with us. For sure. I will definitely do that. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank Thanks so much. You. Bye. This was Bye. fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. 
We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of intergenerational dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.